Welcome back to the Rediscover Your Brilliance podcast. My name is Amanda Oling. I'm an impaired driving speaker, a motivational speaker, and someone who just loves to positively impact the world. Today is part two of who I am and how I went from being a law enforcement officer to becoming a motivational speaker. The opening to this is I put my elbows on the cold brown table in front of me and held my head in my hands. God, please, I'm not ready to die. Onward with the story. Well, welcome back to part two of the story. Yesterday, I left off with how I had just started my impaired driving prevention speaking business and how I was taking life for granted. I said that everything had changed in February of 2017. What happened to change my perspective? Well, here in for a treat. Here's part two of my story. February 14th, 2017. Valentine's Day. It should have been a day of celebration with my husband, but it wasn't. It was just another day of touring and speaking. My marriage really hadn't been the greatest in the past year anyway, so I didn't really care if I was home or not. Ever since I had hung up the uniform, it seemed that my husband had just lost interest in me. Anyways, back to that day. I just drove 12 hours the previous day to get to Hudson Bay, Saskatchewan to do a presentation for a school. As I was speaking on stage that day, I found that I really wasn't feeling the greatest. I figured it was most likely due to the fact that I was just simply tired. I also seemed to be having a hard time breathing properly, like as if I couldn't take deep breaths fully. I figured it was just a change in the air. Maybe it just wasn't as humid. Maybe the air was a lot drier here. I didn't know. But that night, driving back towards the Alberta border... I started to get a sharp pain in my lower back. Again, I just sloughed it off, figured it was just due to driving so much these past few days. But as the hours dragged on, the pain got worse and worse until it became absolutely excruciating. I was so relieved when I saw the sign of a truck stop up ahead. I pulled over, got out of my truck, and started to stretch across the seat. I was hoping that that would alleviate some of the pain. It has to be all the driving, I said to myself. But then shortly after I got out of the truck, I started to get really nauseous and to throw up. Oh no, I've got the flu. I don't have time for the flu. With a crazy busy tour schedule the next two weeks, I did not have time to be sick. I pushed on another four hours to my mom's house in Drayton Valley, Alberta. That was my stopping point for the night. By the time I got there, I was in agony. I went downstairs to the spare room, stretched out on the bed. It felt so good to stretch out. It had to be all the driving, I kept saying to myself. The next day, unfortunately, the pain and the nausea were still there. I was supposed to be heading off for Calgary, Alberta, but I didn't have the strength to even start the journey or even to get out of bed. I felt weak and defeated. This was a huge conference. 
that I was supposed to be speaking at. It was my one big shot at getting some really big Calgary clients. This wasn't something I could just reschedule. It only happened once a year, and I had applied for a few years in a row already, and I'd finally gotten an acceptance. I hoped that this was just a 24-hour flu, and that if I was better in the morning, I could just get up super early and I would still make it in Calgary in time to present. Little did I know... I wouldn't make Calgary. And this would be a start of a really long 10-month journey that would test every morsel of strength I had physically, mentally, and emotionally. Well, the following day, when I had hoped to head to Calgary, instead of feeling better, I was feeling even worse than before. I was so defeated. I hated having to get my mom to call Calgary because I could hardly speak. I was in so much pain to have her explain that I wasn't going to be able to make it. My mom called Alberta Health Link next and spoke to a nurse. The nurse told my mom something I didn't expect to hear. You need to get her to emergency ASAP. If she can't walk or you, can't, or you don't have a way to get her there, then you need to call an ambulance. A few minutes later, I was patting my dogs on the head saying, Don't worry guys, I'll be back soon. And heading out to mom's car to head to the hospital. It was only a five minute drive, but it felt like an eternity due to the excruciating pain in my back and all the bumps in that icy road because this was the middle of winter. Figured that maybe the hospital would just give me some fluids. Since I hadn't really been able to eat or drink anything in the last two days, I was still convinced that it was just the flu. And figured that after that, they'd just send me home. But I was wrong. Oh, so wrong. The emergency doctor immediately ordered a bunch of blood tests and had an IV started for fluids, and morphine for the pain. She said I should be feeling a lot more relaxed soon with some relieving of the pain. But after that dose of morphine, the pain was still there, and still just as intense as before. The doctor reappeared. She had a look of concern on her face. She said I was really, really sick. Turns out the blood test results were not good at all, I had a major infection, pneumonia, and pancreatitis all together at one time. It was life-threatening. I was labeled as being in critical condition. My liver and kidney levels were not good. I was in the first stages of organ shutdown. I didn't find out the severity of all of this until a few weeks later when I was told by my family doctor that organ shutdown of the liver and kidneys is the first stage of death. No wonder that emergency doctor looked so worried. Antibiotics were immediately started by IV. Then more blood tests were done. The antibiotics weren't working. The white blood cell count went up, not down, which meant the infection was raging out of control faster than the antibiotics could be put in. After several hours in emergency and multiple rounds of different pain medications and antibiotics, nothing had changed. 
I was still in a lot of pain and my conditioning was worsening, worsening as the minutes ticked by on the clock. The doctor said that they would have to get really aggressive on the antibiotics and the pain meds. I didn't realize just how aggressive until a nurse came back in stating that, that they would be using four different types of antibiotics and that they were jumping up to using a fentanyl and toradol mix for the pain. Fentanyl, I said. Uh, that's something I speak about in my presentations. That's been killing people, right? <laughs> and you're going to be injecting me with that? <laughs> the nurse assured me it would be fine. They would be monitoring me the whole time. But that it was a tough painkiller. As that drug was added to my IV, I instantly felt like my head was going to explode and like my eyes were rolling into the back of my head. How could people use this stuff for fun? I definitely would not call this fun. The fentanyl also sedated me. I was finally able to get a little bit of sleep for the first time in two days. But a few hours later, I was jolted awake once again by that pain. I looked up at the clock. It was just past 3 a.m. I'd entered the hospital around noon. My mom had gone back home several hours earlier to look after the dogs for me. Would I ever see them again? Man, I love those dogs. Would I make it through the night? I literally felt like the life was being sucked out of me. The doctor had said she was really concerned. Nothing was working. I just had this sinking feeling that I was dying and that this was the end. This wasn't how I pictured dying. This wasn't how I pictured the end. I sat up and pulled the little brown table over to me that they give you in those hospital rooms. I rested my elbows on it, held my head in my hands as hot tears poured down my face. I looked back at the wall with all the instruments that you usually find in an emergency room. Would this be the last thing I would see? I all of a sudden realized just how many regrets I had in life. I felt like a weight on me. I was wasting my life. I had so many regrets. I let depression overwhelm. The effects of bullying and PTSD all get to me. I lost self-confidence. I had just been surfing my way through life. Not really caring. I had been so, so wrong. I wanted to go back and do it all again. I wanted a second chance to live. And this time, to really live. To spend time with my family and friends. To stop taking things for granted. To pour myself into my business. And change people's lives for the better. Would I get that second chance? Or would this be the end? This wasn't the way I wanted it to end. Not cold and alone in an emergency room. Hours away from home. I prayed to God. God, 
I know you're mad at me and I don't know why. You took my dad from me, you ended my enforcement career, you gave me PTSD, and now I lay here dying in a hospital, cold and alone. You know, if you plan to take me tonight, can you just do it quick? Because I can't stand this pain much longer. But if you're planning to let me live, then please heal me fast. I don't think I can fight much longer, Lord. God, please, I'm not ready to die. I've learned my lesson. I want a second chance at life. Please, God, please. Just then the nurse returned to give me the next dose of the fentanyl toradol mixture. I felt the same as before with the explosion of my head. My eyes rolling back in my head. Soon the sedative effects took over. As my eyes started to close one last time, I said to God, God, please, let me wake up. I don't want to die here alone. Then my eyes closed as I succumbed to the sedation, and I fell asleep. Amanda, hey, wake up! I felt a pinch on my shoulder. Was I dead? Was I still alive? Where was I? I forced my eyes open and saw the nurse standing there. Oh, thank you, God, I'm still alive. I'm still here. Hey, Amanda, it's time to do vitals. Hey, how's the pain, honey? Um, it's gone. The, the fentanyl's working, I managed to say. Oh, good. I'm glad this round of painkillers is finally working for you. Hey, your mom just called and she's wondering how you're doing. We'll let her know that the pain has subsided and that this is working. Um, what time is it? I managed to say in almost a whisper. My eyes were heavy and I just wanted to get back to sleep. I was so tired and so exhausted. I was literally in a fight for my life. Um, it's just after 5 a.m., hun. But get some rest. We'll try not to bug you too much the next couple of hours until it's time for the next dose of painkiller. You need to rest as much as possible and give your body a chance to fight. Then she was gone. I was alone again. As my eyes started to close one more time, I pleaded with God, Please, God, let me wake up again. Please don't let me die here alone. Please, please let me live. A few hours later, I blinked as I woke up. The pain was back. At least that meant I was still alive, but it hurt so, so bad. My mom arrived just before the new emergency doctor came in. He said they were sending me by ambulance to another hospital about two hours away in Red Deer, Alberta, to get a CT scan done. Only then would they know what they were facing. A short time later, the ambulance arrived. Another IV had to be inserted. And now I had an IV in each arm. At least the ambulance guys were handsome and super nice. They liked to joke and it felt good to laugh despite my situation. 
My heart goes out to every single person that is an EMT, EMR, or paramedic. You all are a special type of people with the biggest hearts around. Even in this time of crisis for me, those people, well, you did your best to reassure me that I was in good hands. And I thank you for that. One thing I didn't realize was just how rough ambulance rides are. Now, they make air ride horse trailers, but for some reason, no one has quite seemed to figure out how to make an air ride ambulance. Every bump feels 10 times bigger than it really is. And well, when you're not feeling the greatest, that ride is definitely not pleasant, especially two hours each way. Well, after the CT scan was done in Red Deer, I was returned to Drayton Valley to the emergency room. As soon as the ambulance stretcher was pushed through the doors of emergency, I heard words I didn't want to hear from my nurse. Well, you better get comfortable because you're going to be with us for a while. What did that mean? A while? A few more hours? A day? A few days? Longer? I was put back onto a hard stretcher in emergency. Oh, I desperately wanted back on that ambulance stretcher. It was so much more comfortable. The pain was starting to return. The doctor appeared at the end of the bed. From the grim look on his face, I guessed that he did not have good news. Well, your test results are back and um, they aren't good. Due to the pancreatitis, a very large part of your pancreas has died. If you live through this, you will most likely be diabetic and or you may have to take special enzymes to ever eat food again. The best case scenario is that you come out of this perfectly normal at the end. I've called all the Edmonton hospitals to try to get you into their ICU, but so far there's no beds available. So you're stuck here with us for now. But we've got to get real aggressive with the antibiotics and the fluids. We can't let you have anything to eat until things settle down in your body. I didn't really feel like eating anyway. That wasn't a big deal to me, but I was so worried about everything else he said. So doctor, can you tell me what chance do I have of coming out of this normal and please be honest. Am I going am I going to live? The doctor looked at me. Looked down. Took a deep breath and looked back at me again. I give you a 30% of <laughs> I give you a 30% chance for both. Both of living through this and coming out normal. I was shocked. Well, how did this happen? I asked. Well, that's the interesting thing. You see, we don't really know. Now, pancreatitis is usually caused by one of three things. Either gallstones in the gallbladder, a high cholesterol and high fat diet, and or drinking too much alcohol. But the CT scan showed no gallstones. 
you don't have high cholesterol, which shows you don't have a high fat diet, and you aren't an alcoholic, and you say that you don't drink. So right now, I honestly have no answers as to why this is happening. Then he turned and left. I felt the tears well up and start to flow down my face. Why me? Why was this happening to me? I just want my life to go back to normal. Please, God. Please give me a second chance at life. A normal life. An older nurse then came in to comfort me when she heard me crying. I know, honey, I know, she said. You know, if you roll over on the side that hurts, it might help with the pain. We can't give you another dose of painkiller for at least another 90 minutes. We're trying to get you a room upstairs with a more comfortable bed so you can get off this uncomfortable stretcher. I know this isn't pleasant. We should have one ready for you soon. Would you like me to sit with you? I'm off at 11, but I'm all done my work for today and the new shift just came in. I can sit with you for those 30 minutes if you like. I looked up at her. Yes, please. If you don't mind. It's okay to cry, honey. Let it out. But try to rest, too. Your body needs the rest. You need to fight this off. You're very, very sick. That nurse took my hand, and she stroked my hair. It seemed like a really long 30 minutes, but I so appreciated her being there. She was like my little angel. Finally, someone arrived to take me upstairs to this hospital's version of an ICU. I looked up at the clock. That nurse was still there holding my hand. The clock said 11.30 p.m. That nurse stayed an extra 30 minutes just to comfort me. She could have left, but she didn't. That's definitely one special person. Thank you for staying with me. Um, you didn't have to, but I really appreciate it. I managed to say. Oh, honey, I don't have much going on at home anyway. I'm getting close to retirement. You needed me more than anyone or anything else at home right now. And then she was gone. My angel in the form of a nurse. As I got settled into a more comfortable hospital bed upstairs on the top floor of that hospital, I felt my phone buzz indicating the arrival of a text message. Turns out my husband had flown to Edmonton, but instead of coming to the hospital, went to the Garth Brooks concert with his mom and sister. He was texting me photos and videos from the concert. Tears of anger, hurt, and sadness streamed down my face. In my absolute time of need, my husband had abandoned me. He was one hour away from the hospital. We lived five hours away from the hospital, and he was within an hour. And instead of being by my side, he chose a concert with his mom and sister. I didn't know how much more I could take.
here I am lying in a hospital. A 30% chance to live, and the person who should be there by my side isn't. My next nurse then arrived with the next dose of painkiller. She said she was also going to be sedating me with another medication that the doctor ordered. They needed me to sleep and to rest. I now had IVs running in both arms and a splitter on one, so I basically had three things running into me at once now. I tried to get as comfy as I could with lines running everywhere. It felt like there was a bar under my back, you know, like when you sleep on one of those pull-out sofas at your grandma's house or at a hotel. But there was no bar in that bed. The bed was perfectly fine. It was my swollen and dying pancreas, the pneumonia, and my kidneys. They're making it feel like that bar across my back. My phone buzzed again, indicating another text from my husband of more photos and more videos from that concert. More tears streamed down my face. I had so many different feelings going on at once. Hurt, resentment, sadness, fear, abandonment, and a bit of hatred all thrown in. Was I that easy to forget? That easy to step on? My husband's family had kicked me out of the family a few months prior to this, all because I asked for their help in speaking to my husband. He had been going downhill health-wise, and I figured he was diabetic since both his parents were diabetic, and therefore it runs in the family. He wouldn't listen to me or his employer, who was also begging him to go to a, to go to a doctor, telling him that something was really wrong. Well, instead of helping me, his sister told me that my husband didn't have any problems and that he didn't have diabetes and that all of his problems were my fault. I'm not sure if it was jealousy that her brother was married and she wasn't or what her reasoning was for saying those things. Either way, it was hurtful. It became apparent at Christmas time when a box of presents arrived and a card, but everything was for my husband and nothing was for me. My name wasn't even included on the card. I knew the concert ticket was one of the presents that they had sent to my husband. I just couldn't believe that he would choose the concert and his family over his wife, over me. I was supposed to be the most important person in his life. I felt like he turned his back on me. One more buzz from my phone showed yet more videos and photos from that concert. I pushed the phone as far away as I could from me on the nightstand. Tears of overwhelm and so many emotions continued to stream down my face. The sedation slowly took effect and my eyes closed. The next morning, I was woken up by a nurse coming to check on me and a lab tech coming to take more blood tests. There was another lady in the bed on the other side of the curtain. She was saying that she felt bad that she was getting breakfast and nothing had been brought for me. I was so touched, but I reassured her that, honestly, I really didn't feel like eating. I was way too sick, but I thanked her for being so concerned about me. I was amazed at how two strangers 
the nurse the night before, and now this older lady could be so kind and concerned about me, a total stranger. I watched as my nurse started writing on the whiteboard on the wall in front of my bed. As she stepped away, I felt even more discouraged. Under the expected discharge date was written five plus days. I had a full tour schedule the following week. I needed that income. Why was this happening? How would I explain to my clients that I had to cancel? Would they rebook? My mom arrived at the hospital. I told her how upset and discouraged I was. Hey, hey, let's focus on something else. Look, you have a window bed, so you can look out the window and enjoy the view. Well, that did help me to feel a little less overwhelmed, and it did help to change my perspective a bit. After all, I was still alive, so far anyway. And it was nice to look out the window and see the sun shining on the snow. The first doctor that I had seen in emergency appeared at the foot of my bed all of a sudden. She said that there had been a slight improvement in the blood tests, but it wasn't enough to say that I was out of the woods yet. The next couple of days would be crucial. I could have some liquids as food, but no solids as of yet. She needed me to try drinking water just to see how my body would handle it, if it would handle it. If I could begin drinking some fluids and they could slowly turn down the amount of IVs that they had to run into me every hour. Now the next five days were filled with more pain, more blood tests, and each day hoping for better results. Each day they were very, very small improvements, almost no improvement at all. Some of the nurses were really nice, and then some were just really, really mean. Now one of the takeaways I would like you to have from this is that if you hate your job and you are just riding out your time, please don't take it out on clients, customers, or patients. If you are that miserable, life is really too short. Go and find something that will make you happy. Because people won't always remember your name, but they will remember how you made them feel. Especially if they are at a low point in their life like I was at that time. I remember how those nurses made me feel. And it wasn't nice. It turned out that because the doctors couldn't figure out what was causing this pancreatitis, that some of the nurses automatically assumed I was an alcoholic and just not being honest about it or telling the truth. Now I'm an impaired driving prevention speaker. I don't drink alcohol. I don't like it. But they still had their own beliefs, even though they didn't know me at all. So please, my second takeaway is please don't assume things about people. As my mom used to tell me, assume actually means that you make an ass out of you and me. Please don't assume things about people if you don't know the truth. Well, five days into my hospital stay, all of a sudden an older gentleman appeared in my room. Hi, I'm Pastor Lauren, he said. I turned at him with a look of shock on my face of, oh, 
they've given up on me, huh? I thought I was slowly getting better, but if they sent you, I guess I'm not getting better. You're here to give me last rites? Oh no, he said laughing. I, I'm sorry, I'm not here for that. I just volunteer my time here with the hospital. I was looking at the patient list and I saw that you're really young, that you're not from here, and that you're in critical condition and you're really, really sick. I thought maybe you might like to just have someone to talk to for a while. Would you like that? Can I sit down? Actually, that would be really nice, I said to him with a smile. My mom does live here. It's not like I don't have anybody here. Actually, most of my family is here, but she comes to visit every morning and every evening, so I'm not alone, but it would be nice to chat to someone for a while. The nurses are so busy, I just feel I'm not being really treated as a person most days. It was so nice to open up to this man even though I didn't know him, to tell him all my hurts, my fears, and what I was feeling and going through. He looked at me and he goes, Can I ask you, what is your relationship with God and Jesus? He asked. Um, none? (laughs) I think they hate me, I said. He goes, well, why do you say that? Huh, where do I start? Let's see. My dad was killed by an impaired driver just 10 kilometers outside of this town. I got bullied at work as an officer. I ended up with PTSD. And now I'm dying in a hospital. So you tell me, Pastor, do they hate me or what? Oh dear, he says, you've got it all wrong. Let me tell you a story. Now I'm not here to preach to you, but... Looking back, this was definitely a critical turning point in this whole mess. Now, the story that Pastor Lauren told me was actually the story of Jesus and how he died on the cross, but no one had ever told it to me in such simple terms before. Then Pastor Lauren said something I'll never forget. So, if Jesus died on the cross for all of humanity, that means he died for me, but that he also died for you too. Now, if that's not love, I don't know what is. Don't you think you should give him a second chance? I felt a bit of guilt. It hit me right in the heart. Maybe God didn't hate me. After all, he had spared my life so far. Pastor Lauren continued with, I think your whole problem is that you've been trying to control life on your own for too long. You're trying to be strong and tough, but maybe for once you should just leave something up to a higher power. You know, as Wayne Dyer says, maybe all you need to do is to let go and let God for a while. Let him carry you and look after you for a bit. Everything seemed to make sense all of a sudden. I'd been so angry and upset at everything that was happening in my life that I was actually trying to fix everything by myself. I was trying to be tough and strong. I mean, really, I didn't have to be. Pastor Lauren continued with, Well, I have to go. My wife is waiting for me to pick her up from work. 
but can I pray for you before I go? (laughs) Sure you can. Well, maybe God will listen to you better anyway. You know, you being a pastor and all. Pastor Lauren laughed and, and he said a quick prayer. And he said he'd be back in three days' time to visit with me again. And I said, well, that would be really nice. Um, if I'm still alive by then. I said as my voice trailed off. I looked down and tried to hold back tears. Oh, oh, I, I'm sure you will be, he said with a smile. Chin up there, girl. You are loved more than you know. Hey, I'll see you Friday. And then he was gone. After he left, I looked up at the ceiling. Okay, God, maybe you don't hate me. I'm sorry I thought you did and that I turned my back on you all of these years. I don't quite know what you have in store for me. But once again, can I just ask, if you're going to heal me, can you please do it quick? Or if this is my time, please remember, I really don't want to go. But if it is my time, just please make it quick. Take me quick. I can't stand this pain anymore. I'm going to leave it in your hands. I'm not going to try and control anything anymore. I'm letting go and leaving this all up to you. It's in your hands. I really can't explain it, but that night... A true miracle happened. Now, I'm not here, like I said, to preach or get religious on you in any way, but I just know that it's something I can't explain. That night I had the best sleep that I'd had since I'd entered the hospital. The next morning when the doctor came in to see me, she actually had a smile on her face instead of a look of concern and worry. She smiled as she said, I can't explain it, but your blood levels have started to stabilize. The infection is actually finally being beaten. The pancreatitis is starting to diminish. I think we can actually transfer you out of ICU today to acute care. I'm pretty sure you're going to make it there, young lady. Plus, you can finally have your first meal of solid food tonight. Let's see how your body handles it. Now, when Pastor Lauren came back three days later, I actually had a smile on my face. I was being discharged from the hospital eight days after I first walked in and wasn't expected to live. And, best part, I was leaving the hospital 100% perfectly normal. Not diabetic, not requiring special enzymes. I had defied the odds. I thanked Pastor Lauren for visiting me that day when I was at such a low point, for teaching me, and for inspiring me. I gave him a big hug and promised to keep in touch. As I walked out of that hospital, I looked up at the sky. Thank you, I said. Thank you, Lord. The next day, I started living my new life. I had been given a second chance at life, and this time I wasn't going to waste it. Even though I still felt weak and not quite myself, I spent as much time as I could with family while I was in the area. 
The doctor wouldn't quite let me turn, return home yet. I reconnected with friends. I picked up some more speaking engagements. My clients luckily all rebooked and totally understood. And I even picked up my first international conference as a speaking person, like as presenting. It was such an honor to be in an international conference. There was actually so many people that showed up in that room that they had to bring in more chairs. And there was people actually standing in the hallway trying to hear. It was such an amazing experience. I then started reading books by motivational authors and speakers. And I tried out some of the ideas that they talked about and offered. Some things worked for me and some things didn't. So I kept what worked for me and I got rid of the rest. Let's just say... I'm not all about the fluff when it comes to motivational speaking and to personal and self-development tactics. I'm all about solid, tangible steps that work. Anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. That'll be more for tomorrow. Going back to improving my life. You know, because I was no longer afraid to hear the word no, I managed to walk into Cole's bookstore in Grand Prairie with my book, The Impact of One Decision. The manager actually agreed to carry it, and not only was it going to be in the local store, but after a few meetings, my book went national, and every chapter's Coles and Indigo bookstore. I couldn't believe that it had gone nationwide, all because for the first time in my life, I wasn't afraid to hear no. I actually believed in myself. My book was also put into Kindle, and carried by Amazon internationally. Couldn't believe the results just because I wasn't afraid to hear no. How many of us live a mediocre life because we're too scared to take a chance on ourselves? We're too afraid of change or too afraid to hear that word no. But this was not the end of my journey, this was just the beginning of a journey that would test me in every possible way. In total, it would be 10 months of the biggest fight of my life. It would test me mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. The illness wasn't gone yet. The infection lay dormant, waiting to rear its ugly head again. But that story's for tomorrow. But yesterday, I forgot to tell you about my book that I just mentioned, The Impact of One Decision. It's actually the first part of my story that I mentioned yesterday of when I lost my dad to the impaired driver and um, how I had to end my enforcement career. But that book goes into way more detail than I ever could in a short podcast. It also includes some really important tips on decision making and will show you how every decision you make in your life not only affects you, but everyone around you too. I invite you to purchase it. Just go to uh, Indigo, um, to the Indigo website, and you will find it there. It's www.chapters.indigo.ca. Just type in the search bar, the impact of one decision, and it should come up for purchase. Or you're also welcome to actually order a signed copy from me. And you can reach out to me via email at amanda at amandaoling.com. And Oling is spelled O-L-I-N-G. So amanda at amandaoling.com. 
and uh, yeah, we can get you a signed copy. I want to leave you with one thing. I want you to remember, you are only ever one decision away from changing your life. Live a life that matters. So until tomorrow, live strong, live with passion, and God bless.